we're looking at the story of the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, and um, we're going through some really large, large sections in Mark, and today we're going to hit a very large section. Um, but this is, as we go through Easter, uh, we're all reading through Mark, and we do have a daily study guide. Uh, several people in the congregation are, are helping us put together. You can access that on the website. You can access it through the um, app. There's actually a, a on Facebook, there's a chat devoted to uh, the study guide. And um, the, the disciples are like a mirror for us in our discipleship. And, you know, of course, Mark is the story of Jesus, but there's kind of a counter narrative that's going on with the disciples. And, and we're trying to focus on, um, on that story of the disciples. And I, I think this is such an important thing for us as we prepare for Lent. I think everybody should read Mark at least once a year. But we're going to go through 3.13 to 6.6. And, and it all starts with Jesus calling the twelve together. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus called the twelve to be with him. This is really important. Later he's going to send them out to do the things that they've seen him do. They're going to announce the kingdom. They're going to oppose evil. But at first, they're just journeying with Jesus together. So I'm going to bump down to the next scene, 319. Then he went home. The crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. Now, a massive contrast starts at this point in the Gospel of Mark, and I really want to follow this through. It's important. When Jesus called the twelve to be with him, he's creating a new family. They're to be the renewed, restored twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus is going to dwell among them. I think this is so important. We hit this last week, but you know, where John, the Gospel of John, in the prologue, John says the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. In Greek, it actually says pitched its tent among us. And he's going back to a particularly Exodus where uh, God dwelled with the 12 tribes of Israel as they wandered through the desert and, and tabernacled among them. And, and John just comes out and says it. But with Mark, it's, more, it's, it's there and it's veiled. And uh, he's going to say, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear... He is telling us so much about the reality of who Jesus is in, in his whole, whole, whole gospel. So, right after he goes to his hometown, right after calling the twelve, and Mark says his family, they get word about all of the things that he is doing, and, and they think he's crazy. And, and his family, they want to restrain him. Then these scribes come from Jerusalem and they say that he is in league with the devil. His hometown, the people who saw him grow up, they're turning on him. Then in Mark 3.31, Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him. And they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat with him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
So Jesus and his, family, or his followers are on the inside. Mark is very specific. He's calling together this group. He's, he's dwelling among them. He's calling together this new family. And, and once you get this, you realize Mark is so intentional in this section. He divides everything. The whole section we're going to look at. He divides everything between those who are on the outside and those who are on the inside. Next, Jesus tells a parable, and he's trying to explain what's going on here. Mark 4, 3. Jesus says, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell on the path, and birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell on the thorns, and the thorns that grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30, 60, 100-fold. And he said, let anyone who has ears hear. Jesus then explained the parable to his insiders. The minute they're all alone, Mark says, when he was alone, those who were with him, the twelve, asked about the parables. And he said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed look but not perceive. They may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 6 that I wish we had time to talk about, but we don't. <laughs> There's a lot there, including at the end, uh, the, this tree goes down to a stump, and, and the point is, it's, it's, that stump is going to be the seed of what God's going to do, and so Jesus is sowing seed here. Because he says, do you not understand the parable? How will you understand all of the parables? The sower sows the word. They're the ones on the path when the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown. They're going back to Isaiah 6. And then the one sown on the rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root. And they endure only for a little while. Then when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And the others are sown among the thorns, and these are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for things comes in and chokes the word. And it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on the soil. They hear the word and accept it. And they bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. So Jesus is sowing the seeds of the kingdom, is what he's saying. The kingdom is here, the kingdom is now. And some people are getting it, and they're on the inside. And some people are not getting it, and they're on the outside. This is hard. I think this is actually one of the hardest parts of Mark. 
because we want everybody to be on the inside. And we want Jesus to just group everybody on the inside, but that's not what happens. So this whole section from 3.13 to 6.6, it all centers on this parable. And the parable is all about division. Those on the outside, those on the inside. Those who are on the outside by their own choice and those who are on the inside. But it's not just division. It's really about judgment. Judgment's coming. This is going to get harder as we progress through Mark's Gospel because the question is going to become, are these disciples... Are they really on the inside or not? The rest of chapter 4 contains a couple other short parables, and, and they're all related, and we can spend a ton of time here, but we're, we, we, the, all we need to really understand for this point is Jesus, Jesus is sowing, he says, the mysteries of the kingdom, it says literally in Greek, the mysteries of the kingdom. And it's bringing about division. It's creating insiders and outsiders. The end of chapter 4. On that day when the evening had come, he said, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, And they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he woke up and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased. And there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And I love the end of this. They were filled with great awe. And they said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who calms the storms? Who settles the sea? For the Hebrews, the sea was all about chaos. I mean, most of Genesis chapter 1, if you read it very closely, the, the creation story, most of it is about God calming the chaos of the waters. And then in Exodus, Yahweh, Yahweh saves his people by parting the Red Sea, right? The Lord commands the sea to do its bidding. And they knew this. We could spend a ton of time just thumbing through the Bible, looking for all of the references where Yahweh calms the sea, especially in the Psalms. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the mighty waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea and they mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths and their courage melted away in the calamity. And they reeled and they staggered like drunkards and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble 
And He brought them from their distress. And He made the storm to be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad because they had quiet. And He brought them to their desired haven. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey? Psalm 65, you silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of people. You know, see, throughout Mark, the veil lifts. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, Mark is telling us over and over and over and over again, this is what it looks like when God comes to dwell among His people. Who is this that even the wind and and the sea obey? Only the Lord silences the storms. Only the Lord calms the raging sea. Jesus is God dwelling among us. But the question is going to remain, which soil will the renewed, restored Israel be? I mean, how are they going to respond will the seed take when the storms arise? So far, the twelve, they're not the seed that's been taken by the birds. Are they going to be the seed in the rocks? Or will they be the seed in the good soil? Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? They may be the insiders, but they're not doing a very good job at recognizing the Lord dwelling in their midst. At least not when the storm hits. There's two miracle stories in chapter 5 contrast what happened in Jesus' hometown with His family and then what happened with His insiders in the storm. The first, you, you may know, it's a great story. It's an exorcism that happens in Gentile country. Gazer scene. And, and we're supposed to, when we hear that, and we, we realize it's a Gentile country, we're supposed to hear automatically extreme outsiders, right? But Jesus, He gets in a boat, and He crosses the sea. And, and remember the sea. Jesus goes way out of His way to help the epitome of an outsider, a Gentile, who's self-harming, He's living in deep alienation from God, from other humans in a graveyard. Talk about unclean. And he's possessed by demons, not just one, not just two. Jesus asks the name of the demon, and the response is, we are legion, for we are many. To where we're supposed to automatically think Roman occupation when we hear legion. Jesus refuses to leave this man alone, is the point. And and He heals this man. And and Jesus traversed the chaos of the sea to be with this demon-possessed man in a graveyard to heal an unclean outsider, just like He came back from the grave to bring new life so that we can be insiders. And Jesus sent the legion into a group of pigs 
and they jump in the sea and drown. And there's some political overtones here that we don't have time to go into, but this is exactly what the Jewish people wanted to do with the Roman-occupied army there. They could do anything. They just toss them into the sea and drown them. There's so much going on in this story. But we want to skip ahead to the second half of chapter 5. And I want to sit here for a little bit. Because to me, it's the crown jewel of this entire section. And I'm going to read it. 521. When Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side. And we're supposed to hear other side. A great crowd gathered around him. He was by the sea. One of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed, pressed in on him. Now there was a woman been suffering for hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much on her many physicians. Spent all that she had, she was no better, but rather she grew worse. And she had heard about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And immediately where the power had gone from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say, Who touched me? And he looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down and bowed before him and told him the whole truth. That's a freighted sentence. And he said, her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. There's a smaller inside group that we don't have time to talk about, but read it this week. So when they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he went in in Greek, he saw to them and he said, why do you make such a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and went in again. And he took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years old. At this they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. After healing this garrison demoniac, Jesus gets in a boat, he crosses the sea to the other side, and he's teaching, and there's a crowd, and they all got around him, and the leader of the synagogue comes, and he says, my daughter is dying, you need to help her, she needs healing. 
And Jesus followed Jairus to heal this little girl. But on the way, something happened. This woman, been bleeding for 12 years, touched his cloak, was healed. He knew it. She knew it. And then Jesus, as this little girl is dying, starts up a conversation with her. Imagine your job. The leader of the synagogue. I mean, he's a very important guy. I mean, this is like an established insider plus. I mean, he's a, he's a big guy in town. And his 12-year-old daughter is dying very, very quickly. And in Jesus' day, no one would be lower on the social ladder than this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She's an outsider. And she's ritually unclean, unable to be made pure for 12 years. Anything and everything she's touched has been unclean for that world. Jairus has to be thinking, come on. My daughter is dying. We don't have time for this, Jesus. Let's go. Leave this, leave this woman behind. My daughter is so much more important. And you got to think, Jesus is aware of this. But Jesus still took his time. He had empathy. He had compassion. And he talked with her. And I think he was the first person to probably talk with her of any detail for 12 years. Which really means something the more you understand Jesus' world and his social culture. Not only was she one of the insignificant people of Jesus' day, she was unclean. He's a rabbi. But she matters to him. Jesus cares about her. And this brings so much more than healing. But the healing comes at a cost. I mean, a real cost. When they finally get to Jairus' home, what? They discover the little girl's dead. 12-year-old girl died while he took care of the woman. We talk about a cost. How do you think Jairus would have felt about that bleeding woman at this point? But the thing Jairus couldn't have seen, what started out as a story of a healing, can now be a story of new life. A story of resurrection. You can't have Easter without Good Friday. You can't have a resurrection without a cross and a tomb. Jesus is able to raise this little girl from the death because his priority had been healing this outside woman. He took the time. The girl died. But if she hadn't experienced death, she would never experience life. There's so many aspects to this healing. And I think we automatically focus on the physical healing, right? I mean, in general, when we think about healing. But with healing, there's so many things that we can be healed from. Memories, addictions, relationships. I mean, I believe strongly in God's ability to heal physically and emotionally and spiritually. 
And there's three different Greek words, and I want to kind of go into this for a second, in the Gospels to describe different aspects of Jesus' healing. And I, I don't care if you get the Greek or not, but, but what they mean is really, really important. The first, heomai, means to, to, to cure. It's like a delivery from an illness. And the second is therapeo, which we get therapy from, obviously. And that's caring for or waiting upon healing. And then the third, sothesomai, means to, to, to make whole or to restore. What's the difference between curing somebody and caring for somebody? Everything, right? And Jesus did both, is the point, in his healing. What about the difference between restoring someone and just waiting upon someone? And delivering them from an illness. I mean, they're all, all of these are different types of healing that we can experience today. And at different times of our lives, we all need these. The bleeding woman was cured, it says, when she touched Jesus' cloak. Her faith made her well. Mark says, heal my. Cured, delivered from an illness. But then she was made whole. After Jesus spent time talking with her. Sothesmai in, in, in Greek. She was restored. Here's the deal. Two healings happened for this woman. One was a healing of 12 years of physical suffering. But the second was a healing of 12 years of emotional scars. Being ostracized, being separated from her community, her family, her friends, all because of her physical issue. Nobody understood being an outsider like this woman understood. But she was cured and she was restored. The outsider was able to become an insider and, and experience salvation because of Jesus' grace. Because Jesus says, daughter, your faith has brought you salvation. Go in peace and be healed. This is the real healing. In Greek, it says, your faith has brought you salvation. I don't want to get bogged down too much in the details especially, but, but Jairus first comes and he asks Jesus to heal his daughter, but he uses the exact same word in Greek. He says, Jesus, come lay your hands on my daughter so that she might have salvation. There's something going on here. There's always so much more going on in the Bible, and, and especially Mark. Mark we, we think of Mark as the cliff notes. No, Mark is very sophisticated. There's so many levels here. And on one level, Jairus' daughter, the bleeding woman, healing story becomes a resurrection story. And it's a foreshadow of Jesus' resurrection, obviously. But there's so much more. Whenever a Bible story is sandwiched together, uh, there's two sandwiches or two stories going on at the same time. We just got to read a little bit closer because they, they interrelate somehow. They always do. And this is a sandwich story. Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter, the outside pieces of bread. Story of the bleeding woman, 12 years, the inside. Uh, whatever your type of sandwich is. Uh, Deborah made um, um, Reuben's Wednesday night for our all-church dinner. That's what I'm thinking right now. But the big thing is, 
there's so much more going on here for those who have ears to hear. How many years was the woman bleeding? Twelve years. How old is this girl? Twelve years. Now, this is a village. It's not a city. You know, a small community. Twelve years, that can't be a coincidence. It's probably just a couple girls born in a village that size in that particular year, 12 years back. These two stories are so interrelated. I mean, 12 disciples, these two females, I think are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. God's children. God's special, loved community. God's family. I would argue this woman's blood is symbolic of the covenant with Moses. If you remember the Old Testament, Moses, he spills blood from the sacrifice all over the altar when the covenant was made between Israel and God, right? And it was filled with symbol of all kinds of meaning. In Jesus, God among us offers a new covenant. But this is for everyone not just Israel, through the sacrifice of His blood. And even though they're from different worlds, this 12-year-old daughter of the leader of the synagogue and the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, they're equals for Jesus. Kind of like the Gentile demoniac. Grace knows no boundaries. Matter of fact, unlike the young men of the 12 tribes in the covenant party in Exodus 24, these characters are women. And I think that's so important for us. Because this new covenant that Jesus offers, it's, it's symbolized by women here. And this meal Jesus orders for Jairus' daughter when she wakes up is symbolized as the, the meals of both covenants. The one in Mount Sinai, but also the Last Supper. The covenant brought by Jesus is for everyone, regardless of who you are. As Paul says, Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. The outsiders can become insiders. Just like these two females. Jesus dries up the blood of the bleeding woman. Jesus dried up the blood shed on the altar by Moses in the first covenant. Jesus broke the altar of the first covenant. He turns it into a table. A table where we symbolically come and we share in a holy meal bread and wine which symbolize Jesus' body, Jesus' blood. They were given so that we might experience salvation. Wholeness. Through the presence of God among us. What's an altar? It's a place where a priest sacrifices people to God. Table. It's a place where you sit and you spend time together. You eat. You, you have fellowship with your in-group. Symbol of worship in the Old Testament was an altar. The symbol of worship in the New Testament is a table. We celebrate the God who dwells among us. Jesus. The Christ. Jesus who gave his life that we might be healed. Healed in the sense that you can be cured, but delivered from 
whatever binds you for salvation. I think there's an even deeper connection between these two women. And I think it's symbolic of God dwelling among us in Christ as well. And this is just interpretation, please. And we'll never know. But isn't it possible this woman started bleeding 12 years back because she never healed from a birth? Never healed physically, but also emotionally from the loss of her friends, her family, because of what happened to her during childbirth. An insider became an outsider. Because in her world, you could never be ritually unclean and be the wife of the leader of the synagogue. In this world, you would lose You would lose your husband. You would lose your daughter. You could not be the mother of the leader of the synagogue's daughter and be ritually unclean in that world. Twelve years of following from afar, watching, not able to talk with her daughter, wondering, watching her grow from the outside, the sidelines. I just wonder what the ties between these two stories are. are, they're, They're so much deeper, I think, than we realize. And maybe there was more of a new beginning on that day. Maybe more healing. Maybe more restoration than we could ever imagine on both sides. Because Jesus offers a new family. And even when the disciples fail and they desert Jesus in His hour of need, His grace is given over and over so that outsiders can become insiders once more. It's interpretation, it's conjecture, I know. But you have to wonder, since Judaism is the mother of Christianity, right? This section ends just like it begins. Back in his hometown, Mark says he left that place, came to his hometown, his disciples followed. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They say, where did this man get all of this? What is this wisdom that's been given? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and not all of his sisters here with us? And they took offense. And Jesus said, prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, among their own kin, in their own house. And he could do no deed of power except lay the hands on a few sick people and cure them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. I think he desperately wanted them to be good soil. Mark tells us in Jesus, God dwells among us. And that's this symbol. The move from the altar to the table. 
And even on the night He was betrayed, He brought together the in-group as they were scheming to betray. And they shared a meal. And His grace abounded as He said, I offer my body. For your healing, for your salvation, from whatever binds you, grace and forgiveness, a chance to start again. And to do this, I will offer my blood. Jesus still offers new life. A chance to experience real family. However broken we might be. He makes us whole. We pray with me, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love, which knows no bounds. And even as we find ourselves separated further and further and further, like that Gadarene demoniac, your love relentlessly pursues us. And you make us whole. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit, rain down upon us on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Jesus, that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Pour out your spirit. Pour out your grace. Help us experience new life until we feast at his heavenly banquet. All honor and glory is yours, Father Almighty. Amen.